Okay, so uh, turn your notes to page one. We'll, we'll begin our session now. We will go and review the results of your test in a little bit. Uh, so this, this begins sec session two of our inquirers classes. The topic of session two is the moral law and its relationship to the gospel. And part of the logic of the inquirers classes is that we begin the first week talking about our doctrine of, of God, who God is. And then the second we go to the moral law, which reveals who we are before God. So there's a sort of logic to it that way. And un understanding what the moral law teaches is central to a right understanding of the Christian faith. When we, and when we speak of the law, we mean essentially the Ten Commandments given by God to Israel and all of the teachings that surround uh, that giving of the law, the principles that, that flow from that. Jesus didn't cancel the Ten Commandments. Rather, he brought out their, their genuine meaning. And this is made most clear in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, in a, repeating a number of commandments, you have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not do this, but I say, do that. And what Jesus does in the, in the Sermon on the Mount is to make two essential points. One is that obeying the moral law is not merely a matter of outward behavior. It's a matter of inner motive and intention. That is, it's not enough simply to obey the letter of the law if inwardly one's motives are not right. And the other thing Jesus makes clear is that the moral law is not just about doing what is wrong, not, not doing what is wrong, it's about actively doing what is right. And that's why Jesus used the summary of the law. And we, all, we should all know that the summary of the law that Jesus recited is actually a quote of two Old Testament passages from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. In Deuteronomy it says to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And in Leviticus it says to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus put those together. But it turns the thou shalt nots into positive injunctions to, to love. And St. Paul says in Romans that love is the fulfilling of the law. The, the problem, of course, when we talk about love in our culture is everyone starts thinking about warm, fuzzy feelings. And so a lot of people, when they hear Jesus giving the summary of the law, or, or you're, we're told that the law, the moral law is fulfilled in the commandment to love, the implication is that somehow the law has been made easier. Because now all we have to do is, you know, love. We don't have to actually do all the hard things that the law said to do. But when the Bible speaks of love, it, it means primarily actions, not emotions. And to, to love in biblical terms means to honor God, first of all, with what we do, and to do what is good for others, to seek the good of the other, whether we feel like it or not. Jesus actually commands us to love people whom we may not like very much, uh, our enemies in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He does not command us to have warm feelings, and of course you can't command warm feelings. You can never determine how you feel, or sometimes you can't con completely control how you feel, but you can always control what you do. You can always decide to do what is what is right, whether you feel like it or not, which is a, bit, a significant way the gospel stands in contrast to our culture. Our culture tells us, you know, if you feel like doing something, you should do it. The gospel teaches us that we should do what is right, regardless of our feelings. So the point, though, once we unpack the meaning of love, is that we, we discover that all we have to do to obey the moral law is to love God, 
always in every place with all our heart, soul, and mind, and always do what is best for others without fail. And if we can do that, then we will fulfill the law. And once we understand that's the point, we realize we fall short of obedience to the law. And that's the point of the moral law. There are two extended discussions about the purpose of the moral law in the New Testament, two primary extended discussions, one in Romans and one in Galatians. I give the sections in the notes. But the main point of the law, according to the New Testament, the moral law, is summed up in the words of Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Galatians says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. It sets before us a standard that's unattainable for man in his natural state, highlights the fact that we need someone to save us. All have sinned because all inherit original sin from the first human. And this is a, a fundamental Christian doctrine. Original sin is a defect of nature by which our wills and desires are naturally inclined towards disobedience. The doctrine of original sin does not teach that, that we can never do anything that is, is good. Rather, it teaches that the best of human effort falls short of divine perfection. There are essentially three ways we can deal with the problem of sin. The first is to deny that we have any sin, that our actions and motives are ever flawed. It's a, it's a hard case to maintain. A few people try to sustain it. The more common response is the idea that though we are not perfect, uh, yet we're better than most, and since God will kind of grade on a curve, we hope to be in that sort of middle, you know, middle group and, and certainly not as bad as, you know, the, the Hitlers and the Stalins who will obviously end up in hell. Um, and the third response is to acknowledge the truth of the human condition and repent. And that's the main point that the moral law was given for, to bring us to repentance, to realize that the problem with us with the human condition and to point us to Christ who is the answer. We should note, incidentally, in our own liturgy too, we'll talk about this later in a session on liturgy, that this is why the law is at the beginning of the Anglican liturgy, because the idea is that the process of redemption begins with the law and its sentence upon us. And so in our liturgy, when we use the summary of the law, that's followed by Kyrie, Lord have mercy upon us, and leads us into the, the word and sacrament that follows. And when we have the, the Ten Commandments, the response is, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Because the reciting of the law highlights the, the fact of the human condition. So we're supposed to repent. It's supposed to lead us to repentance. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, John the Baptist said repent. St. Peter said repent. In fact, repent is the message at the, at the transition points of the gospel, when John the Baptist appears, when Jesus begins his ministry, and when St. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. And repent means to have a change of mind, which means, it means more than just sort of being sorry for what we did and wanting to do something better. It means to adopt that whole worldview that takes account of the reality of Jesus Christ as Lord and his sacrifice for us and reorders the priorities of life around this new understanding. 
repentance and faith in Jesus Christ prepare us for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was given to the church on Pentecost. Holy Spirit is pledged to us in baptism. The strengthening gifts of the Spirit are pledged to us in confirmation. We will discuss those in greater detail in a class on the sacraments. The Holy Spirit enables us to do, by God's grace, what we are unable to do by nature. There are two significant prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Holy Spirit that highlight the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the command to obey. One is Jeremiah 31, 31, where God promises, The days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt, because they broke that covenant. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So the Holy Spirit fulfills the prophecy of the law written in the heart. We should note in, in relationship to this prophecy that Pentecost as a feast day for the Jews was also the day in which they celebrated the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So the coming of the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the law came on the actual feast day when the law was celebrated. And the contrast between the law written in stone by the finger of God, external to us, and the law written in our hearts by the, by the hand of God, the Holy Spirit, internal to us. The other prophecy we can highlight is, is the prophecy of Ezekiel, where he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. The Holy Spirit changes us so that we are able more and more to do the will of God. We do not believe that the Holy Spirit makes us instantly perfect so that we will never again be tempted or commit sin. Rather, we believe that sanctification of the process by which we are made holy is a work of the Holy Spirit over time. It is work we participate in by seeking the grace of God in prayer, in the sacraments, and the fellowship of the church. Turning away from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ is the Christian way of life. It's not, oftentimes people talk about coming to faith at a moment in time. Faith, belief, is a, you know, it's a present tense verb, to believe. We go on, but we continue to trust, continue to believe, and we continue to repent. We'll talk about that as we get on the notes here, but there's a sense in which we grow in our repentance. When we first come to faith, we see ways we fall short. But the more we grow in our faith, we see new things. Uh, one of the analogies I like to use is the analogy of, um, of the light. You know, when we first come to Jesus, we see a little bit of the light, and in that light we see a little bit of ourselves. The closer we get to the light, the more we see. Sometimes there's this sense in the Christian life that the further you get, the worse you, you become, because you... You see, you, you, but, but the reality is, the further you get, the more you see. Um, in the home I grew up in, there were two bathroom mirrors. There was one in, down the hall, kind of a dark bathroom. You could go in there, and you kind of liked that one because you couldn't see very much. You always looked good. There was another bathroom mirror 
that had the, the window, the sun came right through. And you went and looked in that mirror, everything that was wrong you could see. And so I think that's, that's what it's like in terms of growth and holiness. The closer we get to God, the more we see about ourselves. And it's not God's purpose to sort of uh, beat us up, make us feel awful, but to see the truth about ourselves, we let it into deeper repentance and uh, deeper growth in, in, in faith and holiness. We make progress in the spiritual life as we identify areas of sin, make good confessions, and replace the sin with new virtues and holy patterns of behavior, what are called the fruit of the Spirit. This is the essential goal of the Christian life. By grace, we grow in the image of Christ. We commit fewer sins. We, com we become more like Christ. We should, have, of course, note it's something that is central, at least in the evangelical discussion, that, that as we talk about sin and virtue, that our growth in virtue doesn't justify us. It's the consequence, not the cause of salvation. Um, so we can say, even after we have grown in grace for years and years, and and are, are that, that we're still saved by grace because because it's the product, not the cons it, it's the consequence, not the cause of our salvation. There was a bumper sticker I remember some time back that said that had this tagline that said, "Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven." And while there certainly is a sense why which we need continual forgiveness, not not a sense in which we do need continual forgiveness. I don't think that's an adequate vision for the Christian life, that we shouldn't be content with less than God requires. Hebrews tells us to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. To grow in holiness, I think it's necessary to develop a vocabulary of sin and virtue. Just as in medicine, when you're sick, there's certain names for certain things. You have the flu, you've got cancer, you've got an infection. And for each of those things that you might have, there are certain things that you might do to respond to it. So in the vocabulary of sin and virtue, we deal with certain sins or certain kinds of things we can do to approach those sins, deal with them, and, and help uh, overcome them uh, by grace in our lives. So in this um, vocabulary of sin and virtue, uh, the foundational place to turn is to the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue. And now you can look at those and see how they, the actual ten compare to the ten that you've created. Sometimes by your additions and omissions you can reveal something about yourself, uh, uh, but in any event. Briefly, uh, I want to say a couple things about each of these. We can talk more about them in our discussion afterwards. The um, First two commandments, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods but me, and the second, thou shalt not make thyself any graven image, deal with idolatry, that there aren't any other gods but God, and that no images of God should be made, and it says of things in heaven and earth or under the earth, so it covers the whole created realm. And the essential prohibition here is that we're not supposed to worship the creation. We're supposed to worship the creator. And we get uh, that essential summary of idolatry in Romans 1.25. We, in order to apply this to our lives, we have to do a little bit of exegetical work. Few of us actually carve statues and are really tempted to sort of fall down in the living room before a piece of wood. But when we understand that the principle of idolatry is to worship the creation rather than the creator, 
we can see all sorts of implications for that. Where are our idols? What aspects of the creation loom too large in our lives and call us away from God? That's the way that discussion begins. The third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless to take his name in vain. Um, it was originally aimed at swearing false oaths in God's name. That is, if you said something that you, that you meant something in God's name to not mean it would have been a vain use of God's name. This relates to oaths and promises we make in the name of Christ. One way we take the name of God in vain is to b bear the name Christian meaninglessly. To belong to him, to carry the name of Christ, to use the name of Jesus is um, significant and we should honor it in that way. Um, also, as Jesus expounded on this in the Sermon on the Mount, you should let your yes be yes and your no, no. You don't actually need to make a vow because why would you need to make a vow and promise by, you know, you always knew when you were a kid, guys, that I swear in a stack of Bibles he was lying because you always need to swear in a stack of Bibles because he, you know, he wasn't telling the truth. Um, I, I, there, of course, is that secondary uh, uh, use of this commandment where we're in the garage working with a hammer, we miss the nail, hit the finger, and the name of God comes out, um, you know, we ought to be careful about that too. We should not, uh, there's lots of other things you can say <laughs> to express your uh, pain at that moment. The fourth commandment is about the Sabbath day. And we should be aware when we talk about keeping the Sabbath day holy, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day, that the Sabbath for the Jewish people is Saturday. And uh, there was a general process in the Christian tradition whereby the significance of Saturday as Sabbath was transferred to Sunday, uh, primarily because the Lord rose from the dead on Sunday. That's the Lord's day. That was always a day for the Eucharist in the church. And as Christianity left its Jewish context and went into the Roman world, there was no inherent Sabbath, Old Testament Sabbath day observance, so, so Saturday away to Sunday. But in the tradition, the Christian Sunday never had all the aspects of the Old Testament Saturday Sabbath. Uh, so the, 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 the Sabbatarianism whereby we, we, if we attempt to make Sunday the exact replica of an Old Testament Saturday would be a departure from the tradition. The essential point of the Sabbath day commandment is that you're supposed to take a day off. And I think in essence it's a, it's a commandment or, or one, one aspect of its commandment against workaholism. The, the, the person never stops and never takes a day off. Um, and also you should give your people a day off as, as, uh, as much as you have people. Uh, responsible or you're responsible for people, uh, give, them, give them a day off. Um, I think there's probably an application to, of, this, of this to worship, although the commandment to gather together for the, for, for the Eucharist is probably maybe a, a secondary point from this, and it's made elsewhere in the New Testament. But primarily the Sabbath is take a day off and don't be workaholic. And with that day off, one would, one would presumably honor God in, in, in some way. I mean, ideally in the tradition, you, one, one can have Sunday as a day off in which we worship in the church and, and then you know, have a day that, that has a sense of, of, of rest. But not everyone can do that. We have a police officer among us tonight, 
we just don't want to give them all Sunday off because that'd be a real problem. Um, you know, some of us like to go out to eat on Sunday. Well, if everyone had Sunday off, we no one to, you know, so if we, if we were literal about the sun, but nobody works on Sunday, there'd be some problems there. Kind of like the doctors to work on Sunday, too. You get sick there, you like some people in there to patch you up. So there's some aspects of that. Okay. Commandment number five, honor thy father and thy mother. We should note that the promise comes with it that thy days may be long in the land. Um, this deals with respect for authority. And the idea in the biblical sense is that all authority bears, I should say it this way, people in authority represent God in, in regard to that function. And this is why the New Testament has the idea we're supposed to obey the government. We're supposed to obey the various people who are in authority over us who, when they legitimately carry out their God-given function. There are, of course, exceptions, like when the government told the early Christians that they couldn't worship, they felt bound to disobey because that was a government taking on an authority it did not have by God's right. So there are applications of that. But it's, it, it's, uh, it's a commandment to honor authority. And I think it's an important commandment in the modern world because we're a, a world in which uh, there's a lot of disrespect for authority. Thou shalt do no murder. Um, we should understand number, the commandment number six, that uh, there's a distinction between murder and killing. Um, we can talk afterwards, if you'd like, about the whole capital punishment debate, but the Bible uh, does not, in so many words, prohibit it. And so, biblically, there are about four things that are, four types of killing that are not murder. Self-defense, accident, killing in time of war, and capital punishment. Adultery, um, strictly speaking, is sex outside of marriage. Uh, when one of the parties is married to someone else. And the New Testament adds the word fornication, which is sex between people who are not married. And so this commandment reserves sexual relations to marriage. As one person commented, uh, it's always somebody else's spouse, even if it's in the future. So you'll be taking something from somebody to whom it belongs in the future. Steal, stealing, thou shalt not steal. Uh, we should be aware of the subtle ways we steal, uh, uh, not just the, the, the conscious robbing a bank, but uh, sometimes there's other issues like stealing a software and other things that come up in our culture, going to the paying for one buffet, taking two meals, that kind of thing. Um, bearing false witness uh, applies to honesty in general and gossip, sins of speech. Remember that false witness, we can say things that may be strictly speaking true, but may not be charitable. And so that falls in the category we talked in our Bible class about speaking the truth in love. And coveting, um, which means a strong desire uh, for what belongs to another. It's stronger than, I like your car, I'd like a car like that. It's coveting is a strong, ungovernable desire for what you have that will lead me to do inappropriate things. Um, the appropriate thing is, I want a car like that will go work, save up, buy a car like that. An inappropriate thing is to kill you and take your car. <laughs> yes, very uncharitable. Another way to characterize sin is to talk about the seven deadly sins. And these developed in the course of Christian history and the discussion. Actually, in the patristic era, there were various categories. There were eight and nine different sins, but these seem to have stuck as, as being uh, categories of sin that, that, that kind of envelop the
the whole of the range of possibilities. There is in actually, uh, I think we have some of the St. Augustine's prayer book from the bookstore, has a extended discussion underneath each deadly sin that unpacks it in more ways than you want to know. So if, if, if you're not feeling sufficiently guilty, um, look at that self-examination. By the time you're done with it, you realize all, you're guilty of all the seven deadly ways you never even thought about anyway. Um, when we talk, we'll talk about the seven deadly sins, but we should also understand that, that, that it's, it's important we talk about sin, not only to focus on sin, but also to focus on virtue. <clears throat> the goal is to grow in virtue. And so we should not think of the Christian life as just we're always just how bad we are, how bad we are, but, but what it is that we're characteristically being tempted by and what it is we need to develop in our lives to, to replace that temptation with, with, with a positive virtue. And, and the truth is that as we do what is, as we practice holiness in the virtues specific to each situation, we simply will find we do not sin. That's the idea. If you, if you actually go out the business of loving your neighbor, giving each what is appropriate in circumstance as a positive act, you'll find you just, oh, by the way, you're not committing sin. Okay. I'll briefly talk to these and we can talk about them more afterwards. Um, First in every list of deadly sins is pride, which is, is not being proud of the work you did, which is not necessarily a deadly sin, but it, it, it is putting yourself in the place of God. The opposite of pride is humility, which is not a false sense of unworthiness, but a right understanding of who you are as a sinner before God. Envy is jealousy of, of another's gifts and place in life, wanting to be who they are. We should distinguish envy from covetousness, which, is mean, which means to want what somebody has, which is distinct, and I may want what you have, but I may not want to be you at all. Or I may want to be you, but not what you have. So one is aimed at person, the other is aimed at goods. Um, envy needs to be combated by being thankful for the life God has given us and, and the gifts he has given us. Uh, because to be envious is essentially to say to God, you've, you've not made me worthwhile. I need what somebody else, I need to be somebody else to be happy. So the, the kind of way to work on envy is, is to work on the prayer of, of, of thankfulness and also to be content. You'll notice in all these sins that pride is kind of the fuel that, 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 that governs them all in that why am I envious that you have more than I because I've got to be more than you. I've got to be more important. And so the, the, the virtue of contentment, that is content being who God has made us to be, even if that is not, even if that isn't the most visible person in, in, the, in, in the environment we're in. Uh, covetousness is greed for gain. It, it is to believe the lie that having more will make us happy. And so it's combated by generosity. We, we combat greed for gain by disciplines of giving away. Principally in the Christian life, the tithe. Giving the first part to God un, is a direct combating of covetousness, which always wants more to get. When we receive our income and honor God with the first part, it, it puts things back in order. God is honored with the first part, and he puts a blessing on, on the rest to use uh, for us to use to meet our needs. Um, also, the practice of generosity. If we find ourselves wanting and, and, and desiring 
we should seek to give, find ways to give. Anger, um, often fueled by the hectic pace of life. We get in a hurry, people in our way, we want them out of our way. Again, you see how pride works there. Happens a lot in the car. We left ourselves 15 minutes to get to somewhere that takes 20. That's when the guy who ought to be in the right lane is in the left lane. That's when it all, you know, and... Um, and, and so a anger is, is uh, related to impatience, and, it, and it's, it's not wanting other people to be in our way, so we also see the, the pride of that. We need to combat that with the practice of, of, of patience and charity, which is to be, as, as we're in the business of being angry and wanting to kill somebody, thinking, you know, what is really their good? <laughs> Think of what is the good of the other uh, and, and maybe it's not their fault that I left five minutes late. Maybe it's not their fault that, that, that I am where I am. Um, prayer, I think, is also very essential to, to combating anger, my own personal experience. When we're too, quick, too hurried in life to pray, we get impatient, we tend to fall into anger. If we pray as a discipline of life and recollect and remember the presence of God, we are less likely to fall into anger. We've got more of that later, too. Uh, another deadly sin, uh, number five on this list, lust, which involves a divorce of sexuality from responsibility, the desire to use another person as an object for our own ends. Um, so we need to learn to treat others as people, not merely as objects of our desire. Um, We combat lust with the virtue of chastity, which is a positive possession. It's not just to not have lust, but to, but to possess chastity, which is control of our desire. Um, and it's something we have to pray for. C.S. Lewis has a good point in the screw tape letters where he talks about uh, the essential point is, remember when we talk about virtue is, the point about virtue is not simply trying to be virtuous, but praying for virtue. We ask God for these graces, and he gives them to us. Uh, we can also be aware, with regard to this sin, to be, to be careful with provocative material, which is everywhere present in our culture. And so there's a necessary discipline of the eyes. Things will come upon us whether we're looking for it or not, uh, and so we have to be careful. Uh, six on our list, gluttony, which is excessive indulgence in things, um, which we should understand is... is not really the enjoyment of things, because when people, this, this is a, uh, a form of idolatry because we're controlled by appetite for created things. We're controlled, when we are con thusly controlled, we can't really enjoy them because they control us. And so we combat gluttony with practices of abstinence and moderation. As we learn to do without things, we develop self-control ability to govern our appetites. And so everything we can enjoy, paradoxically, fasting affirms the goodness of things because we do, without, we do without things that are in and of themselves good in order to gain control over those things. And so that when we have them, we can say yes to them in a positive way. And I think a good principle is we can only say yes in a positive way to things we can also say no to. We should also be aware of, of 
of the need for discipline in, in media. Uh, there's a lot of gluttony involved in TV, radio, internet, overindulgence. And those are properly also areas for fasting, that is, get away from those things for a while. And you'll, you'll, you'll see if, if you're caught up in some of those things, as, as we all are at some time, um, how helpful it is to really get away from them. A lot of people first experience the power of fasting and abstinence during Lent, when the whole church does for 40 days, and all of a sudden, wow, boy, that, was, that really had an impact. And, but I think we also need then to carry over into a practice of life on a regular basis. Lastly, sloth. Um, it's the creature hanging by his tail from the branch and never doing anything, um, which is laziness with regard to one's duties. Spiritual sloth is called axity and refers to a spiritual listlessness. And so we combat this by being diligent, by faithful attention to one's duties, especially when we don't feel like doing it. This especially pertains to life of prayer because anyone who tries to live a life of prayer with discipline will find that, that, that you'll come to a point where you don't feel like praying. But if you pray anyway when you don't feel like praying and learn to work through that, you'll find you'll emerge on the other end of that with greater spiritual growth. Conversely, if you allow your feelings to govern what you do, you'll be governed by your feelings. A couple of notes here uh, before we stop and discuss. The theological virtues we should be aware of in the, in the language of the church, uh, faith, hope, and charity or love from 1 Corinthians 13, that's what they're called, and the cardinal virtues which come from the classical tradition, prudence, temperance, courage, and justice. Um, together they also make seven, a lot of sevens in the language of the church. Um, we should also be aware of, of, of the, what we call the enemies of the soul, the devil, the world, and the flesh, which we renounce in baptism. And how they are distinguished and, and how temptation comes to us from those avenues. Um, the devil being the fallen angel and other fallen angels who, who are with him, the world being the external lure of mankind and communal rebellion against God, the flesh being our fallen desires, not the body per se. Um, and a closing note uh, simply on, on uh, happiness. I think that we start talking about obeying the law of God, we have to hit head on the sort of assumed cultural notion that what commandments are about is keeping us from having fun. And so there, there's this implication that God gave commandments to, with, to withhold us you know, from, from our, our fulfilling our desires, and therefore God is seen as a kind of a spoil sport. The truth is that our desires are wrongly directed and when we in, in, indulge those wrongly ordered desires, it ends up not in fulfillment, life, peace, but in misery and guilt. And, uh, but there is in, in, this, in the whole apparatus of temptation a kind of contrast between temptation, which, which offers a short-term fulfillment in exchange for disobedience. And that short-term fulfillment may be real, may actually give us something in the short term, whereas Faithfulness requires a short-term suffering, a refusal to disobey God in exchange for a long-term reward. Uh, as a pattern for this, we could look, for example, of Jesus and the temptation of the wilderness. The devil offered him, for example, all the kings of this world to simply, if he just fall down and worship. Of course, he said no. He took the way of obedience, and we come to Revelation, and we see that the kingdoms of this world have become 
the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So he did get what the devil promised by the way of the cross. The devil promised a shortcut. And the devil lies because he, he doesn't give you, once you disobey, he doesn't give you what he says he's going to give you anyway. But we should be aware of that, I think, of that sense, of that wrong sense that, that the moral law keeps us from fulfillment. In fact, to, to, to bring ourselves under God's law is to have the human animal operating as God intended, and, and that's what brings it joy and peace. And we also be aware of the, of the word uh, that is bandied about in our culture, happiness. Even our founding documents talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is often in our culture seen as the fulfillment of our desires right now. And we have to be careful about that. The, the Christian faith does not promise happiness. It promises us contentment. It promises us peace. It promises us an inner joy. But that may or may not go with temporal happiness. We may have situations where we struggle.